0: The Nordic countries did very well during the modern era. Their secret? An approach to education called Bildung. Metamodernity is a possible future where we take the best from the past and the present, locally and globally, and turn it into a meaningful future for all. My name is Lena Rachel Anderson. Welcome to Nordic Metamodern. So, welcome to uh, Nordic Metamodern. This is the first podcast slash video in the series, and I have invited three very special guests for this first episode. My name is Lena Rachel Anderson. I am a philosopher and a political thinker. Uh, My three guests for this first episode are Manuel Manga from California, Teddy Nalugo from Denmark, and Arvind Slato, also from Denmark. And we're gonna be talking about the Nordics in this first episode. The Nordic meta modern. I gave it the title because the Nordics have been really successful in, in the industrialized era, in the modern era, and now we're facing a transition towards something new, and that could be a metamodern era, and we're going to focus on that in a later edition of this podcast. So today we're going to talk about the Nordics and why that might be relevant not just to people in the Nordics but also to people in other parts of the world and I hope that that is the conversation that we're going to be able to share with you uh, in the coming hour here but first I would like my guests to introduce themselves and I have given them two minutes each uh, so that we can have a little bit of, of background and know who we're talking to here so Manuel I would like you to start and say a few words about yourself thank you
1: I'm glad to be here. My name is Manuel Manga. And I was born in Colombia, in Cartagena, Colombia, beautiful city in the Caribbean. Um, And I now live in Oakland, California. Uh, I came to the United States when I was like 14 years old, moved to New York City, and grew up in New York and learned about psychology. I'm a psychologist, social psychologist. Uh, but but the last 40 years I've been focusing on leadership development and looking at leadership. And I'm also the founder of the Center for Evolutionary Leadership here in California. Uh, One of the things about me is that uh, I recognized, especially through my psychological work, that we needed to develop both the individual as a human being, but also the culture and the society in which the people live to create a more well-being system. Uh, so I always been curious about the development of both the individual and the systems so or society in which they live, uh, not either or, but we need both. So it's a more systemic perspective. So. Uh, my work on evolutionary leadership has to do with uh, having leaders who have a vision that is more systemic, more evolutionary, more about creating uh, a better future. Um, and we we need it today to create sustainable, better futures. And therefore, I'm here with Lenin, and all of you to explore that better future. Thank you.
0: So uh, thank you, uh, Manuel. Next in line, Teddy. Um, I know you're here from uh, from Copenhagen, but please introduce yourself to our viewers and listeners.
2: Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Teddy. I was born in Ikanga, East Uganda. I moved to Denmark when I was eight years old through family reunification. My mom came to Denmark as a refugee. and growing up, I grew up in AMA in uh, social housing. So everybody that I've known has been from all over the world. Today, I work as a pedagogue in the uh, center of Copenhagen, in a very cultural diverse uh, area of Copenhagen. Yeah, I'm 38,
0: mother of three and living the good life. So, Oyvind, are you living the good life?
3: Well, uh, it's hard not to live a uh, good life when uh, living in Copenhagen. I think it's really one of the most beautiful cities I know. Um, Although living a good life is always challenging somehow, sometimes easier said than done. Um, Well, my name is Eugen and I I live and uh, work in Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, Originally, I'm from Germany. My father's Norwegian and my mother's German. Both of them are musicians and uh, they moved to Denmark when I was six years old, I followed. Um, And actually, the first uh, education I got was actually a musician. I was studying at the Royal Danish Academy of Music. Um, And after three years, I decided to study uh, design or apply for the for the design school. And I think this opportunity is something which is quite unique for Denmark, or at least Scandinavia, because higher education is something uh, you don't pay for. I mean, we are paying, uh, we have a quite high income tax, um, some more than 50%. And personally, I'm proud of each and every crown I pay, uh, because I got these two educations and and, uh, I'm happy to give others as well. Um, And... Being able to, to have another education and uh, you know change my profession uh, was something that that I really benefit from. I use my uh, music. Um, well, I'm not practicing or playing professional music anymore, but what I learned from being a musician is something I really use today when I do innovation. And actually, one of my first clients was Bang Oluf's. Uh It's a it's a company making uh, speakers. Uh, uh, so, well, I don't know if this is because I made music, but well, I think just the fact that I was able to have two higher educations without paying for it is something I'm very glad about. Uh, Beside having my studio, I also work for the National Arts Foundation, which is the biggest arts foundation in Denmark. And here we also try to help, especially uh, young designers and, and design or the, the design industry and designers to to uh, well make a living out of
0: thank you very much and thank to all three of you I, I invited you all with a purpose uh because you have a very different background and it turns out that i'm actually the only person in this conversation who was born in denmark and and grew up here throughout my my childhood so what we're gonna talk about is the Nordics and why the Nordics might be interesting, not just to us who live there, but also to the rest of the world. And it's, it's not to brag, but it is because in a lot of surveys, uh, the Nordic com- countries come out in the very top. Uh, and when I'm talking about the Nordic countries, I'm talking about Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And having grown up here, I, I mean, I traveled, so I do have something with which to compare, but Manuel has, has visited Denmark a number of times and has seen it uh, very much as somebody coming from the outside and both Teddy and Oyvind have grown up here, but were born in, in another place and have parents who come from, from different places. So the, the question is, uh, what is it about the Nordics? And just to start off with a little bit of facts, there was just a new... Uh, survey out about the, uh, it's called the World Happiness Report 2022. And on the average life situation, I'm just reading some numbers here. Finland is the most, uh, the happiest people right now. Then comes Denmark as number two, and Iceland as number three. Four, Switzerland, five, Netherlands, six, Luxembourg, and then as number seven, Sweden, and as number eight, Norway, and then Israel and New Zealand. So all the five Nordic countries are among the 10 happiest countries in the world or 10 happiest peoples. Evil tongues say that it's because we have such low expectations that we're never really disappointed, but there might be something else to it. And that is what we're also gonna uh, be talking about. Then there's the world values survey, which explores or surveys the values around the globe. And if you uh, imagine a a matrix where the X axis, the the horizontal axis has uh, two extremes. One is collective thinking and traditional thinking at the lower end and then at the higher end, self-expression values, which is what it it surveys. That's it's one set of values is self-expression. And there the Nordic countries are in the high extreme on self-expression so very individualistic in some respects even more individualistic than the united states and then on the other axis the y-axis it goes from traditional values to very secular values and also with regards to secular values the nordic countries are extreme and particularly the swedes are both extremely secular and have a high degree of self-expression so And and they're even more extreme than than the uh, other Scandinavian Nordic countries, Iceland, Denmark, Norway and Finland, but we are all five countries stand out in this respect. And then there is the good country index created by some called goodcountry.org and here we have Sweden as the and this survey, they measure over several years which countries do good for the rest of the world. And Sweden is number one, Denmark is number two. I don't know exactly what it is that we do that um, that is so good for the rest of the world, but they put it online and they put their name under it. So I, I suppose they know what they're talking about. And then there's Germany as number three, Netherlands as number four, and then we come to Finland as number five, Canada, Belgium, Ireland, France, Austria, and as number 11, Norway. And I suppose that Iceland with only 300,000 inhabitants is such a small country that is not really in the survey because it does not have all 200 countries in the world. So these are some facts about the Nordics. And the question is, of course, how did we get there? What are some angles on the Nordics that might be relevant exploring? And um, before we get into a a deeper conversation about that, I've asked my three guests to do a short presentation about their angle on this Nordic um, culture, Uh, Manuel has come up with the expression of the achievable utopia, so Manuel, could you please say a few words about that?
1: Sure, thank you, Lenin. Um, For me, um, uh, my background being uh, as a social psychologist, uh, I wrote my thesis basically uh, looking at what can we do to make an individual flourish? an individual develop as a psychological speaking. Uh, and, you know, we had to deal with people like Maslow, Abraham Maslow, motivation, Robert Keegan, and others. But I also was curious about the role of culture and how does the society or the culture help or or hinder uh, the development of, uh, influenced by the work of Eric Fromm, for example, in his famous book, The Same Society. Uh, so I was always curious about what, how could we make uh, humans flourish, develop better and what kind of societies are needed to do that? Uh, and this is what brings me to this concept that I call achievable utopia. Uh, and when I look at Uh, The Nordic countries, uh, specifically Denmark, which I have worked and visited several times, I get to see that the Nordics have uh, many of the elements that I would consider for an achievable uh, or utopia. Um, You know, there may be other names for that, but um, uh, that's the name that makes sense because it's something that we can uh, actually design and build. Not something up to just dream about, which is more utopian. Uh, so, uh, and for me, the, another you know, my background coming from Colombia, where there is a, a great deal of uh, gap between the rich and poor, a big divide uh, uh, in, in a country that is extremely beautiful and rich in natural resources, yet half the population, almost 23 million people, live in poverty. And in Colombia, you have different levels of poverty, uh, which is crazy uh, uh, to have that much poverty in a country that is so rich in natural resources. So it, I always had this uh, influence because of my background of how could we make uh, humans flourish in countries, societies like Colombia or Latin America or Mexico, uh, I live here in the United States, but, and we have also poverty here in the United States. Uh, so one of the things that I was grateful to when I came to United States was to come here and get free education. So that was a stop, a, a, you know, one step, not a stop, a step forward in my development. So when I look at the Nordic, I see three things that are required for an achievable utopia. One, you need basic education. Uh, it's Free it's even better, uh, so that the human can flourish and develop. And two, you need a society, a culture that uh, allows for expression, for development, for creativity, for design. If you live in a culture of fear, like in Colombia, they had a war for 50 years, it's hard to develop if you live in a culture of fear. So the Northeast have a culture that allows you to express yourself more. And I had the opportunity to teach in some of the schools there, one in particular, Khao where I could see the young people studying and having visions of making a better world. And I said, terrific. And the Danish government and system supports those people. so. Uh, the achievable utopia, at least in my mind, the three systems that I see: one is basic education or basic human needs met. You know, you cannot go hungry. You should not go hungry. You should have schools. You should have safety. But also the freedom, the culture to develop, to explore, to innovate. But then you need this institutional circle, the third system, in which the institutions support the well-being of the individual. So now you have this uh, positive reinforcing, you could call it, system that creates an achievable utopia. Thank you, Lenny.
0: Thank you, Manuel. Um, I i have to say, I do recognize uh, my country and, and the rest of the Nordics. So uh, you may be onto something. I would like to pass on the word uh, to Teddy because both Orban and uh And Manuel have now mentioned education and since you are a teacher we agreed that you should say something about the pedagogical tradition in in Denmark and the Nordics because that turns out to be rather unique as well.
2: Thank you very much, it is quite unique and it is an overwhelming uh, amount of work um, and time and um, I don't, I'm lost for the word, but it's, a, it's not a subject that is stagnant, it's always in movement, it's always developing. But what you said Manuel is quite true. You talked about the system that builds on the individual and that is part of what the pedagogical work in Copenhagen or in Denmark, in the Nordic country is built on. And you can't talk about pedagogic work without talking about uh, formation. And when I talk about formation, I here in this context, it's more than the cognitive development of language, grammar, music, arts, all of that you can put in. But it's more about the individual, the child, being seen from uh, maybe six months to 10, uh, 10 months, having um, educated pedagogues who help in their development, stimulate and have Uh, the individual's uh, development uh, in a systematic uh, formula that goes from the, yeah, six to 10 months and all the way till 100, because that's the the education format. When you study to be a pedagogue, you work with children or adults from zero to 100. In the school setting, uh, the work has, two legs that it walks on. As you were talking about, you have the individual that is pretty much in focus, but you also have the group that's in focus. So you you don't only work with the individual, you work with the individual and the group in a harmonious uh, angle so that both can mutually grow and develop with each other. You were talking about poverty and the gap between rich and the poor in the Nordic countries. The state has actually goes in and makes sure that everybody can access um, these uh, systems, these institutions. For and you don't have to. You do have to pay a little bit, but if you can't pay, the the government kind of comes in and helps you because it has an interest in the well-being of every individual in the country. So I think that's what the utopia is about or the achievable utopia that you were talking about. Because for me, coming from a third world country and often visiting, I I can see it as a privilege Whereas if you were only born in the Nordics and only have been around the Nordics, you tend to take it for granted. You don't see, oh, because it's just normal. You normalize it that everybody has access to the basic needs that you were talking about.
0: Thank you. True. I mean, I I did grow up uh, very privileged from a very early age. Uh, there's no there's no reason to to hide it. And um, and I I have traveled and I've seen other parts of the world. So yes. Uh, Oyvind, you did grow up here from a relatively young age, and you're gonna tell us a bit about Nordic design and what is behind it. And literally behind you is a lot of Nordic design, and you actually made it. So, Oyvind, please tell us a a bit about the Nordics from a design point of view.
3: Well, thank you. I think when, when many people think about Nordic design, uh, they think about some of these classics that are made in the 50s, which means more than 70 years ago. Uh, the 50s and 60s were maybe the golden age of, 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 of uh, Danish design. Uh, and much of this was also because the government was, was going to support uh, much, of, uh, much of this uh, design by simply purchasing a lot of design to all the public uh, building schools and uh, libraries and, and, and so on. And this really um, helped uh, uh, the, the designers and also the companies to invest in, in, in new things, which is a quite high risk. If you, if you look at many of these things, they look very beautiful and sculptural and, and aesthetic, um, but, when they were, they were, but when they were made, they were actually quite brave. They were not following a trend or based in some market surveys or something like that, but they were born out of some human values um, with, with a need to try to improve the life. Uh, a very good example is, is the Wallet Chair by Wigner, by, um, which is a, a wooden chair of three legs, where the backrest is shaped in such a way that it's also a place where you hang your jacket. And uh, when you go to sleep, you can even place your pants on the seat, uh, hang it in a nice way. And if you use it to sit on, uh, you can hide your balance uh, in, in the chair. So it's, it's a very functional tool. So one of the, the other great masters of Danish design is Paul Henningsen, uh, who more or less 100 years ago made a logarithm to make sure that you get the most out of a light bulb without getting glare. I use these principles when I designed my first lights. Uh, so even though I use some principles that are more than hundred years old, they are still relevant today um, because maybe the human eye hasn't changed that much. Um, and the lamp I made, the result was, it looks quite natural, uh, like, a, like a shell or, or something you find in nature. And that's something I really try with my design. I don't try to make it look special or something, but simply just natural. That one was also what I tried to make when I made the first speaker for Bangalow. Actually, this was the very first product I ever made. If I should describe it, it's simply a circle on three wooden legs. Uh, and why a circle? Well, because sound is traveling in circles, and it looks more than a f- as a furniture than as a machine. Um, and this was made ten years ago and for a consumer electronics that's a quite long time to be on the market and it's still one of the most important product for Bang & Olufsen. And what you see behind me here is um, is a modular sound system also for Bang & Olufsen which is not only creating sound but it's also taking sound. So those they, a lot of hexagons the size of a plate maybe and you can add them on the wall uh, just as when building Lego and the more modules, you have the better sound or the better silence, because they're actually also absorbing sound. Well, that was a little bit about my design work. Um, and today, of course, very much is about sustainability. And I try always to make with not just making products that are lasting for a long time, but also products you can disassemble and, and uh, well, using as little energy as possible. And, uh, and so on. It's, a, it's an ongoing process
0: so actually as we're looking at your loudspeakers there behind you with the hexagons the hexagon is one of the nature's strongest structures actually we see it in in beehives and if you're going to pack you know apples uh in a fruit stand and you want to squeeze as many apples as possible into the surface you put them in a hexagonal uh pattern so so this is this is copied from from culture i would like to start the conversation with with something Teddy said, because you mentioned formation and the formation of the individual and the formation of the group. We also use the word Bildung. Um, and and this Bildung thing is really central in, in Nordic education in general. So maybe I, I was wondering if, if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that and how you work with that. You have in your classroom... I suppose somewhere between twenty five and thirty kids, and probably even more languages than you have kids. So how do you, how do you actually do that? I mean, it's one thing to have Bildung from a hundred years ago in a homogenous country. Now we have so many cultures in, in one room. How do you how do you go about that?
2: Well, first of all, it's all about meeting the individual child and figuring out who they are. The relationship that that me as a pedagogue. Uh, start with and once and it takes time you can't just from one day to another say oh i figured this child out it's all about observing collecting data setting up some structural games and activities to figure out is this who is this individual and how, where are they in their development both to emotionally uh, language wise and from there on you build on and so in my work, I have them for a year in Denmark. Um, I think okay. in most uh, Nordic countries, you have the zero class. They That's the last step before it becomes school school. So we have one year to work with their formation as individuals and as a group. And it's a dynamic uh, uh, socialization. It's a lifelong socialization, but here it's, uh, it's it takes place in a year. And in that year, it's it's a collaborative, it's a collaborative work. Uh, and before there was a discussion that, well, anybody can come in and do this work. But because there's a lot into it in, with, well, how do you meet the child? How do you create an environment that is safe for the child and safe for the group? Because development and learning takes place when the child is feels safety. So it take, it, it, it's a practice game. And I think Denmark has a lot of years ahead of many countries where we've uh, done a lot of research within this pedagogic field, and there's still more research uh, taking place in how we can better uh, the individual, the group, the whole uh, organization. But I feel like we're at the top and we're doing pretty well, again, compared to what I know from my third world country
0: background. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and I would like to bring in one thing because, as I said, I grew up in Denmark. I, I went to, actually, I went to one of the private schools, but it wasn't fundamentally different from the public schools. And You were a teacher in one of the public schools. One thing that I never, ever experienced, and I know that a lot of Americans are probably going to think, what? I never experienced a multiple choice test. I have never been tested in the Danish school system with a multiple choice test. I went to school from 75 to 84, and I don't even think we had, we had some written tests, some essay tests once per year in the 8th and ninth grade. And then just to kind of teach us how to take a test, we tried it out in the 7th grade as well. Other than that, nobody ever tested if I understood what had been taught. So how how can we make sure that the kids actually understand what's going on?
2: Well, the thing is, with tests, you kind of put a goal in development. And we're all different and we're all in different stages. So this is on me, but I feel like in Denmark, we have an understanding or a view where uh, learning doesn't go in a linear way, but it goes in circles and the child kind of develops in circles. So you can have about algebra in this index and feel like, okay, then the text, the test that we're going to do is at the end of the month and we've had this algebra. And then you have the child who's not really emotionally in the place to take in that education that you're giving it that. Te- uh, so. You can test them and say, oh, you you felt algebra, but they're in a different place learning something else. So uh, we're slowly being forced to test more, but our ground uh, values will rely on the uh, circular learning that with time, when from zero class to ninth grade, you have 10 years to develop as a human being. And it's the values who you hold as a person that's going to create the person that's going to sit for the test. And if you don't do well on the test, there are other tests. Uh, So it's structurally different from the American system, the British system. Uh, Actually, I, I was saying to my family and back home, if you don't do well on tests, you have to repeat the year. In Denmark, it's almost unheard of unless there are very, very strong arguments no you don't repeat a class because we believe that whatever you need to learn you will learn with time and it's yeah i i actually subscribe to that chain of thought i don't know what you
3: well i i I agree Uh, this uh, sorry well the um we 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 don't have many of these kind of uh, stop classes or you have to to do it again uh, compared to germany uh, where, where i'm from and uh, i mean i i, I was studying at german school once when i was living in portugal and it was a cultural shock for me because it was very hierarchic it was a lot of tests and and, and a lot of uh, reproducing what the teacher was kind of a he he was really an authority and we should say we should call them by their family name not by their first name and in denmark well, we were more like friends or or they were or, or much more equal, much, much more easy somehow. And, and uh, I don't know, I, I felt quite uncomfortable in this German system. Um, yeah, I did
1: like it.
0: <laughs> Manuel, you were saying something or I was about to say something.
1: No. Yeah, I, I, I would say philosophically and, and psychologically, I agree uh, with Teddy and um, I'm so glad to hear that education is circular. Uh, and that uh, you don't need to test the, the person if, uh, to see if they really learned it or not, then on process. Um, which uh, here in the United States, when I was in school, there was a lot of testing and it was stressful, uh, very, very, very stressful. And you have to pass certain tests in order to even apply for uh, at university. Uh, Etc. and very much uh, memo- memo- memorizing facts uh, as opposed to other stuff. So yes, uh, very, very good, uh, Teddy. I'm so glad to hear that.
0: Yeah, Orvin.
3: Just would like to add, I mean, it's not so that Denmark is completely free of tests. Um, well, I mean, people, professionals uh, from, from hospitals to teachers to uh, uh universities are I mean uh, uh, whoever they are actually complaining a lot about that they have to test more and more and the public management philosophy is also spraying to denmark like a cancer thing i don't know but i think now we somehow understand that um it's not about there's not everything you can measure and even if you can measure it's not necessarily uh something that makes you make better decision and even though you get a lot of Data, it's not the same thing that you get a lot of knowledge. Um, so I hope we somehow can um, get back a little bit from 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 the testing that are getting more and more of in all sectors of
0: society. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole phenomenon of teaching to the test, which is also that once you know what the test is going to be, you're just making sure that the kids. Know the answers for that test, or that they have the kind of knowledge that you can actually test. And and we, um, one of the things that I've been working on in in the recent years is is building. And that is also what has brought us here for this conversation and starting the whole global building network and the Nordic building organization behind it. And the philosophy of building is related to the emotional and moral development of the individual. In combination with an understanding of the society that you're in and all the factual knowledge that you do need, of course, we do need the science and math and we do need to understand how you, I don't know, book a train on train ticket online or you need to know a bit about history and geography in order to understand how the world is functioning. And we have currently this horrible war in Ukraine and if you don't have a sense of history, if you don't have any context for that, it's really hard to understand why would anybody start such a war, I still don't really get it. But um, there are, you, you need to understand the world that you're in. And building contains both the factual knowledge, the easily transferable knowledge. I mean, you're a teacher, Teddy, you know how difficult it can be. But there's there's the kind of knowledge that is relatively easy to transfer from one person to the next. It's academic knowledge, it could also be the practical knowledge of, of fixing a bicycle or reading a map or something like that. And then the other part is the emotional part, how you relate to it and how you relate to other people. And I think the, the building tradition, the formation tradition in the Nordic school systems is that we have really focused on both the transferable knowledge and the inner development, the moral development, the how do you engage with other people and this whole strong emphasis both, and it's really a both and on the individual and the group and how you interact in the group and and with the group and one of the things that i would like to bring up in this conversation is the Jante law or, or law of Jante, because it's a it's a danish author who wrote about it was in a novel uh, a refugee crosses his trail or his track and I don't think very many people recall what that novel is actually about. I, I for one, have forgotten it. But the Yander Law has a, like 10 commandments of you shouldn't think that you're worth anything. You're not better than anybody else. And it it's a way of, yeah, what is it, Teddy? Because we actually had a sort of different views on it. And and Orvin, we talked about it before. So, Teddy, if you could just introduce us to the law of Yander, Yander Law, that kind of defines the Nordic countries somehow.
2: Well, yeah, thank you. Well, for me, coming from a third world country, coming here, and as I told you, I grew up in the social buildings and my friends are all, from all over the world with similar family backgrounds. And when we went to, with our ethnic Danish, Danish friends, There was, for me, within me, a feeling of being less than or not as good as. So in ninth grade, we were talking about the novel class and my teacher brought it up. And one of the laws, there were 10, as you said, said that you shouldn't think that you're better than anybody else. For me, that was a total emancipation because I felt empowered. I felt like, oh, so you're not better than me, even though you have all these privileges Because there are privileges, and I felt like I didn't have that because of my background. But here, I have a teacher saying that, no, nobody's better than anybody. We are all the same. I took that, and I ran with it. And it empowered me to actually just participate in a panel like this, because... Again, if I was thinking uh, like my countrymen from Africa, I would be like, oh, I don't have the same educational backgrounds as you guys. I don't have the success as you. So who am I to sit and contribute with anything in this panel? But with the Yandalo, I'm like, well, you, you've achieved. you achieved, you're great. I have achieved some things and I'm great. And we're all human and we're sharing this human experience and we can mutually learn and uh, mutually get, gain something out of this conversation. So for me, it's a reminder, a humble reminder that don't always think that anybody is better than you and you don't think that you're better than anybody else. And I've actually passed it on to my kids as well as uh, when you go to school. Remember, you're not better than anybody and nobody's better than you. You're all people, you're all kids, you're all the same. You're just different.
0: Cool so but uh or, i mean, that is a kind of different interpretation of this gentle than uh, than you and i are usually thinking of it right
3: well well i think that was a bright side of it uh, and i'm very happy to hear uh, this very positive interpretation of it which i uh it, it really makes sense and and uh maybe i mean I, I really feel danish now and and maybe thereby i see also the the the, the dark side of it. And uh, the thing that you shouldn't think you can teach us anything or you shouldn't think you can learn us or you're not better than anyone. It can be used in a very suppressive way uh, or something which can actually be quite dangerous for democracy because um, a democracy needs people that actually engage in society. uh, people that actually dare to dream about how to improve things. And if you are frustrated about something, but everyone tells you, hey, don't tell us what we should do. We know what we do. And don't tell us you're better than anyone else. We also need uh, the ability to dream and the ability to, uh, the courage to change and to, to, to create visions. And, and there, I think the new is extremely dangerous because it can actually really uh, make a passive and 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 that's something in, in that way I think Yandelow is more dangerous for Denmark than ISIS and 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 uh, well other not so nice things. But the good thing is that I mean one thing I'm very thankful for, which I think was possible in Denmark, which would not be possible in Germany. The very first project I got uh, this speaker on the three legs was for the most prominent uh, client in Denmark and I hadn't done anything. I hadn't anything on my CV and I could simply knock the door and they opened and they were listening to me and they dared to, to, to use this project even though I didn't have any experience. I hadn't, uh, so, so, and I, I think that's kind of the, the good thing of, of in a way, Gandalow because, I mean, we don't have many talents in Denmark. So if somebody knocks the door, you better open and listen.
0: Yeah, because it's a small country. So, I mean, the, the number of... The it's, num- it's a small country, it's a small country. Yeah, I mean, the number of people who speak Danish or the number of people living in Denmark is 5.6 million. So, I mean, that's barely a city in, in the United States. And and here we are, and, and we have to have school systems and public institutions and loudspeaker design companies and all the other good stuff. So I'm I'm wondering, Manuel, did you know about the law of Yandel, the, the Yandel law? Have you heard about it before? Oh,
1: I, I haven't. Um, I did hear a little bit more like a rumor that when, uh, more like a rumor, like um, in, especially in Denmark, I was talking to my friend Martin, who's Danish, and, um, and he was saying something like, you don't want to come across like Uh, You're better than other people. Uh, You know, you you don't want to have your ego, you know, like I'm the best, I'm the better. So the way he explained it to me um, was actually, it sounded like a good way to relate uh, the way he explained it to me because um, it it made it sound like it was um, not polite to, to, uh, to think that I'm better off than you are. Uh, in public. But I could hear both sides of this. I'm new to this concept, but I remember now Martin explaining it to me. Uh, I remember saying to him something, uh, why do a lot of people in in Copenhagen wear uh, the same color, like a dark gray color suit or or black? And I said, what's with all? Am I seeing? Am I going crazy? You know, he said, no, everybody, I mean, I could see in the street, everybody was especially a lot of the the women were wearing long gray coats and black, very elegant. You know, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's like, wait a minute, where, where's purple? Where's where's the other colors? I come from Colombia where everything is colorful. And here I was like in this gray environment. said, well, I think that's because they don't want to show that you're better off than somebody else. In a gray suit or a gray color, a, a, Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it makes you more equal. So I think there is some positive aspect I could interpret of the gentle law. As I understand it, this is new to me, but, but I also could hear Alvin saying, wait a minute, you know, there's nothing wrong with also you saying I'm really good at this or I'm creative. So it, it could be a, a, a paradox. I, I agree with Teddy when she says You're not better than anybody else. Uh, We're all equal. I think to me is a good, and yet we're different. Uh, But in that equalness, there's room for individual creativity. So as long as it's not like, we're all gonna be the same cookie cutter expression. um, So it's a paradox. It's a dialectical paradox of we're all the same in this room for expression of creativity and individuality. So I think that it should be a both and not either or, that's it.
0: I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I'm happy that you put it this way. And I, I'm happy that, that uh, so somebody learned something during this conversation. I learned a lot already, but but it's really interesting to hear about this Yantelov from somebody who has never heard about it before. Yes, Manuel.
1: Well, I'm just going to say something else that uh, uh, I come from, I was born in Colombia. And when I came to the United States, it was like, we're all equal, you know. I mean, if you go to the Penn Central train station in New York City, big, bold letter says, a pluribus unum, you you know, remember that, a pluribus unum, out of many, one. And some people don't like that in America. No, no, we don't want to be all the same, you know. But they say you, you have all these immigrants, out of many, one. Um, so that's, that's a concept. At the same time, there should be room for individuality, for expression. Um, so it's, it's a dialectical thing. Uh, I, I have to say that in Colombia, where I'm from, um, there, there's a, a strong social class uh, differentiation. Very, very hard to break out of that. And to me, that's the negative side of uh, saying who you are because people, by just by your last name uh, in Colombia, people first thing they ask you is, What is your name? And you tell them your name, and they go, Oh, you must be from that family, that special family. And just by having the last name, you are placed on a pedestal. Or if you went to a particular school, you know, university, you go, Oh, Doctor Manga, oh my God! You know, so there is a lot of uh, hierarchical uh, structures that keep the, the 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 society divided, and 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 that's why we have a civil war for fifty years. People are saying, "Wait a minute, you know, we got to break out of this class uh, of this class structure." Uh, anyway, let me just leave it like that. Ivan. I would like to add something to that,
3: uh, uh, talking about the gender law or the equality network. Uh, I think that the good thing is that it's, we don't need to show our class as aggressively as in many other cultures. Uh, and something you can see if you go in Copenhagen is that you find, uh, actually there was an American uh, politician who, uh, who was very shocked when he said, even lawyers are riding bicycles to work in Copenhagen um, and for him it was a nightmare, uh, but we, we actually, I mean, we do it because it's faster, it's more fun and, and we don't have to show our wealth with a, with a big car. Actually, it's considered being bad taste if you wear these kind of status symbols as uh, very expensive uh, watches or uh, cars or whatever, um, because it, we have the welfare system and, and so, so wealth is not only financial wealth, it's also cultural wealth or, or social wealth.
0: I think the, uh, the bicycle thing is, is very interesting because we also have uh, prime ministers who have been bicycling to work and there's been several ministers in office who, who have turned up the parliament on, on their bicycle. And when one of our previous prime ministers had lost the election, there's a beautiful picture of him, Lars Ljöker Rasmussen, where he leaves his office with this old backpack on his shoulder and he's just walking out of the, out of the parliament Um, and, and he's just, suddenly he's back to being this ordinary guy with a backpack and having to, well, now he's starting another party, so he's still in politics, but it's, there is this sense of, well, there's institutions of power and then there's everybody has access to them. It's not quite the whole truth because of course we do have class differences and economic differences. And there is, the Yande law has not killed all initiative, but there, but there is a different but, kind of respect for people even though you arrive at a meeting on your bicycle. So, so yes, there is a, a Well, I give there. you an example,
1: uh, Lenny, and you know, related to that, I was, I was living in Brasilia Uh, the capital of Brazil, right? You know, and it's a very, you know, designed city, but but almost no sidewalks, almost no sidewalks. In a whole city, imagine that, because it was designed for people to be in cars. You need a car to live in that city. You can't even, you cannot even walk anywhere. You, you, there's no sidewalks. I mean, to me, it was like, what, who designed this place, right? Two supposedly. We actually know architects. who
0: designed it, and it's horrible, yes.
1: And, and it is horrible. So w- a friend of mine said, I'm going to drive, you know, he worked in the government. I'm going to go there and go on a, my bike. And th- when I was there, they started to build the first bike route, the first bike route in Brasilia. But he said, if I go to work or a party in my bike, when I get there, because it's a little warm, I'm a little sweaty. If I arrive in a bike, I am immediately put in the category. I'm a poor person. I they won't even let me in the building because they immediately think that I am some working class person. So it's a stigma to come in a bike. Imagine that. So compare that to Denmark.
0: And I would you know, also like to compare- the culture.
1: Imagine that. You know, it's a stigma. You're poor. You can't even afford a car. And so right. in the building yeah. that I was in. There will be four BMWs in the parking garage. The people who cannot afford a BMW. Anyway, let me stop.
2: Well, I, I was just, I had a funny story to that. And it's just because I'm female. I, The whole rich and poor and expectation and hierarchy. I remember going to Africa and I had cut my hair off. I was bold and they were like, but you're from Europe, you have been in an airplane. You, can't, you have to have air, hair or you have to buy it. You can't walk around without hair. So it is ingrained in most uh, societies that uh, the hierarchy and the dress code and what you're supposed to look like, but it's not very sustainable. And I think that we should also look into that and uh, discuss more about well, what will make us more sustainable as a human race will that be more yeah. equality, more of us remembering the basic, or is it more about showing off? Yes.
0: I will get back to that in a second, but I wanna uh, bring up a story that I read in one of the American newspapers last week, which is about the economic der- 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 uh from generation to generation. There has been three or four generations where for a long time, each generation was better off than the previous one. And now it's going down seriously in the United Mm -hmm. States. There was a story about a family where the grandfather had died and nobody knew if he had actually left any money or just unpaid bills. It turned out he had mainly left unpaid bills. And then the daughter in the family uh, was trying to find work so that she could save up money so that she could move to California and get a life for herself. And the way that the system works, because you have to have a car to get around in the United States. I forgot which state it was that they were living, these poor people who were just selling, you know, finding metal, selling it for scraps and then trying to make a living piece by piece, so to speak. So they described how she was working in a fast food joint of some sort. And in order to get there, she needed to get a lift or she her plan was to save up for a car, but every day to get there and to get back, she would have to spend maybe $7 or more, $15. And even for a bus ticket in Copenhagen, that would be a lot of money. So, and then the article said, in order to get there, the, the four miles away from her home. So I'm like, four miles, that's nothing. That's, the, that's 10 minutes on a bicycle-ish. So if she'd had a bicycle, if there had been bicycle lanes, she might actually have been able to save up money from that one or two full-time jobs in a burger hamburger stand. And so if we talk about economic sustainability, if we talk about hierarchies economically, if we talk about status or just the fact that you can actually work yourself up from the bottom of the economy, A simple thing like having a bicycle instead of having to buy a car, get gas every time you want to go to work and home from work, or pay somebody on Uber or Lyft or one of the other services. Um, We have a lot of free transportation here because we have all those bicycles, so whether you're a student, you're a single parent, you're on social welfare or anything else, if you live in one of the cities, you can get around for free. Would be great with the free public transportation. I would actually advocate for that. But but I think we tend to forget that some of these little practical things can actually have a huge impact, particularly at the uh, at the bottom of the economy.
3: But also, something I have to add is that actually it, it turned around. So now the very well wealthy people they're riding the bicycle, the middle class they're riding the car, and the poor one they're riding the bus in the public transportation. And why is that? Actually, it was a strategy. And why has that happened? Well, it's because the, 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 the property in Copenhagen is very expensive living in the big cities. So if you live in a walking distance or a bicycle distance, which is not the same as walking distance from your work, you take the bicycle. If you cannot afford to live in the city, well, then you take the, the car or the train. So... I mean, we, we, we also have the classes, especially because the, the housing has become so expensive and, and, and you, you somehow need to be very well paid in Copenhagen. And I'm very sad to say that many teachers and, and policemen and, and, and nurses, they are not uh, uh, able to live in, in, the, in, in uh, close to the center anymore, which is a huge problem,
0: I think. Correct. It, it started as a problem in london and now it has spread to the rest of europe so i i absolutely yeah. agree with you but if if you're a student if you're a high school student you don't have to have a car you can bicycle to school in, in most places That's and right. then if you go to your uh you know after school hours job to make some pocket money you can actually spend the money on whatever it is you want to spend them on and not on, on transportation
1: yeah i'd like to add to that and uh i want to uh bring up the the concept of design that Olvin has uh, spoken to. Um, uh, I also learned the concept of design in uh, two, two dimensions. Uh, one dimension was to design the the stuff in the real world, you know, like the chairs, the furniture, the building, and most people equate design with that. Uh, and for me, Bucky Fuller, uh, who, was one of my teachers, also heroes. Uh, he was focused a lot on designing uh, geodesic domes, and, but also designing the world. He said we could design a better civilization. So he was utopian in that sense. He, he was one of the people who said we could have an achievable utopia. He wrote a book about, about that. Uh, uh, he called it Utopia or Oblivion. Um, and he said, we have the knowledge to design a better society. On the other hand, I also had the benefit of studying what some of us call ontological design. Uh, And I learned this from people like Fernando Flores. And here is the design of the self, the human, as Alvin was saying, the creator, to see oneself as a designer of my life. Uh, And there you also get influence from people like Robert Keegan, Uh, developmental psychology that says we can continue to expand our consciousness and our identity to be global citizens, uh, to be multi-citizens. So I consider myself Colombian, I consider myself American, U.S., I consider myself a citizen of the world. So it's multiple dimensions and circles, like you say, Lennon. So I think we it it goes back to education. So it goes back to how do we educate people to continue to design themselves and design their society so it's circular. So yeah, we can design better uh, furniture, better trains, better bicycles, but we should be also be designing, uh, you could say better cultures, better uh, minds, uh, the minds that we have today and I will mention too many names. Are, are almost like not sustainable for this planet. Uh, so we 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 need this is a holistic approach to development to design, and I think we have the the knowledge to do that. Uh, just the listening to the three of us here. Thank you. I also well, thank
0: you.
2: you. Yep, Teddy, please. No, I just wanted to conclude by saying, I think it's a healthy, healthy exercise to also ask yourself like, who am I? Am I a creator or am I programmed? When I do this and this and this and program myself through this and this, am I actually just following a manuscript or am I allowing myself the freedom and the creativity to think outside the box? I think that's brilliant, Ivan. And thank you for that.
0: Well, I would like to thank all of you uh, for your contributions, for your thoughts, and we have talked about circularity. We've talked about design. We have talked about creativity. We have talked about very much about the, the Nordics and education. We've talked about bildung and formation, and the yande law and status and whether your name tells other people who you are and where you're coming from and where you belong in the in the hierarchy and we will return to some of these things in in later episodes of the Nordic Meta Modern but before we conclude I would like to ask do you have like one final thing you would like to conclude with before it's goodbye for uh, for this first episode Manuel please
1: I, I would I would say that thank you Lenny thank you Teddy thank you Ovin that together, I think what inspires me, together we have the, the ingredients to creating achievable utopia. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Orvin. I, I, I was just you know, thinking about
3: designing the future. Uh, is, I think it's very clear that the, 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 the most important designer is the teacher uh, because you are Creating the future. You're creating. You're, you're, you teach or you, you you show or teach kids how to become creators, how to become humans, how to interact, how to create the future. That's the most important design, we, yeah, which exists.
0: Thank you, and Teddy. I just
2: want to say thank you and thank you for that uh, again, uh, Ivan, with the creator, because it gives me a sense of spark in my work and I will definitely take it back and I'll try to contain everybody at my workplace to remind them that we are creators. And you are are absolutely right, we have this responsibility and it's all about living up to that responsibility.